Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing Continued Learning Podcast, Integrating Extended Reality, XR, with OT Practice, with our guest, Robert Ferguson. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Dennis Clary. I'm an occupational therapist with 25 years of experience. I'm a senior researcher and assistant professor at uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio. And really happy today to be joined by my good friend, Rob Ferguson, who is an occupational therapist at, is it the University of Michigan, Rob, where you are? It's the University of Michigan. <laughs> I was I was thinking so. Yeah. So Rob, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, you and uh, how you came to this place and why we're going to be interviewing today about technology and virtual reality? Well, I'm Rob Ferguson. I'm the uh, clinical specialist at the University of Michigan Hospital in therapeutic technology and neurorehabilitation on inpatient rehab. I run our therapeutic technology program, which encompasses our computer therapy treatment lab, our uh, virtual reality program, and our MakerPod makerspace. I've been a therapist for about 26 years, um, coming this summer, be 26 years. And um, you wanted me to go into like how I got into VR or how I became a therapist or what? And I'm, I'm glad that you have one more year of experience than I do, so I appreciate that. But yeah, tell us a little bit about how you um, became interested as a therapist in virtual reality. Um, well, it started back uh, probably in 2008. Um, the computer therapy treatment lab was just started here at the university, and I was completely against using gaming and technology and therapy uh, because of my... Uh, dogmatic practice mindset at the time. And uh, I was convinced over a period of time that uh, technology was not evil in therapy, uh, but that um, it was a great way to combine um, treatment strategies with technology to meet your goals. And it was just a version of virtual reality. And at the time, much of what we were doing was also considered virtual reality in the literature. But the real true nature of the virtual reality became interested in um, the immersive part in 2017. Um, And we started kind of um, utilizing it with our therapists from Mott Hospital. They had some technology specialists who were using it for uh, distraction and and pokes and pricks with kids during procedures. And we started combining about how we could use it as a a medium for providing therapeutic uh, intervention. And uh, once we saw some of the benefits from it, we were, we were sold and we did more research on it. Uh, did some return on investment write-ups for my boss. And the um, only thing that convinced her was once we had her actually get into virtual reality and then she was sold. So, gotcha. so you said you were dogmatic at the beginning. Oh, yeah. So could you maybe tell a story or two about maybe a, a patient that you saw that really benefited from virtual reality? Uh, most of my patients, I mean, almost all of them benefit from it. Um, are you talking about virtual reality in the sense of immersive or? Yeah, especially in the beginning where you kind of came in, you know, as a, a strong uh, opponent to technology and then seeing, you know, how you could really incorporate it into your practice. Well, Doug Rakoski, who's now at uh, Loma Linda University, started the lab here at University of Michigan. And when he first started uh, 
we actually had a conversation and I kind of told him that technology didn't really have a, using it as a, as a medium wasn't really appropriate because my, my dogmatic perspective was assistive technology and I just couldn't grasp the concept of using assistive technology in a therapeutic way. And I, you know, was stuck as a neurorehabilitation clinical specialist. I was um, stuck in some of the ways that I was mentored and trained and some of the coursework I had taken. And you tend to get stuck in certain ways. And it wasn't until uh, I started working with Doug in the computer therapy treatment lab that I realized I had no idea what I was talking about. So it was very eye-opening for me. And he'll tell the story where we had that conversation, but it, it took a trip to a local restaurant for us to get through our differences. And then after that, we worked together over the course of probably about 10 years. Um, and I learned how to use the technology in a therapeutic way um, and just expanded it into immersive virtual reality. Gotcha. So I know you've been uh, involved in this for a while. How would you say, what are some of the big changes that you've seen in the technology um, over the over the 15 or so years that you've been using it? Well, it, 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 the understanding of what virtual reality is has changed because the technology has changed. The concept has changed. Um, will continue to change in the future as well. Um, I, I think for me, the way, way I've seen it change is that it, it's opened my eyes and many other people's eyes to how occupation changes and the context of occupation changes over time. What we view as occupation is uh, evolutionary. Maybe not revol occupation may, may not be revolutionary, but it is very evolutionary. It changes over time, and and uh, I think the technology, therapeutic uses of technology, and virtual reality and extended realities are part of that evolution of what occupation means to people. So, would you say that sort of um, assisted technology and virtual reality is a continuum, uh, or are they different? Uh, as I always say about everything, uh, that all depends. <laughs> so the reality is I, they're very different. They, they may use the same technologies and tools. What makes them different is your intent as a clinician. If your intent is to be adaptive, your intent is to kind of fill in the gap between a person's abilities and the demands of the demands of the activity or task that they're undertaking then you're going to use assistive technology to fill that gap, to fit that puzzle piece in there. And the technology allows the person to complete the activity. When you're using it, uh, virtual reality as a, as a treatment intervention or therapeutic technology as an intervention, the point is not necessarily just to fill the gap. That's where you start. The difference is when you're done using the technology, you've changed the person's capabilities, their capacity to participate and do that activity. So it's a very remedial approach. The whole point of it would be to change their occupational performance through through changes in their, their capacities to uh, uh, do the activity. It's a very different uh, approach, even if you're using the exact same technologies. So in a sense, maybe the assistive technology could help you, you know, better engage in the virtual reality? Or am I a little bit off? Correct. And no, that is absolutely correct. The assistive technology is the, the way that it allows you to have the access to virtual reality. And that is actually one of the big barriers that we can talk about later for using virtual reality with a lot of, of people is, is accessibility. And there are a lot of groups now that are working on improving accessibility to the extended reality technologies. 
Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcast. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with occupationaltherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's occupationaltherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. Gotcha. And yeah, we'll be talking about that uh, on down the line, and there'll be some resources on the handout uh, that comes along with this podcast that'll help you um, figure out what some of those organizations are, and maybe even reach out to some of the occupational therapists in that space that are doing some great work, such as yourself. Um, so could you just talk about some of the different types of technology and um, kind of what you consider that you would consider to be extended reality and virtual reality? Right. It, it's the taxonomy of extended reality is very confusing and it changes over time with the technology. So if you think about um, extended reality as an overarching kind of um, umbrella term for anything that includes how technology and um, a digitally produced environment interacts with us in the physical world. So that's the really broad, confusing way of saying uh, it's virtual reality in many different ways mixed with how we move and do things within our own physical world. And there's a, a broad spectrum of how that occurs. Um, from virtuality to virtuality and everything in between. So you start getting terms like um, virtuality, what's mixed reality, augmented reality, and then there are subcategories of those. And yet everybody's talking about that as one thing of being extended reality or virtuality. And the reality is that there, there are, are no common definitions, although it's becoming closer. And so the important thing is to always have a reference point as to what you're referring to and what someone else is referring to when they use that terminology, when they talk virtual reality, extended reality, mixed realities. And it gets very confusing, especially when, you know, you get involved with research and, and treatment paradigms. Yeah, I've, uh, we're working on a project at Cincinnati Children's right now, um, looking at some of those issues. And so um, it's just been good for us to clarify what terms mean, because uh, I think it's fair to say that I'm, uh, I use technology, but, um, I'm not a, you know, a hands-on, you know, day-to-day -day expert in terms of, uh, some of these technologies we're using. So if you look at virtual reality versus augmented reality, how do we, how do you differentiate those two? Um, I think the way to look at it is to first understand what the, the common, definitions currently are and how they've changed over the past few years. So I'll give you an example. Um, video games are a type of virtual reality. So if you look at defining virtual reality as a computer generated environment, um, then anything that has digital content 
would be considered that. Um, virtual reality also encompasses 360 degree video. Um, even though it's a representation of real life, it's digitally um, recorded and played back. And so that is still considered a virtual component because there is some um, a, a digital digitization of the information. However, it's not created digitally. So there even within that, there are people that would argue 360 degree video is not virtual reality even though you're immersed into it, that the level of immersion is, is, is there, that it's not digitally created. And so we're already starting to confuse different kinds of technologies because people start calling them the same thing. So Because a realtor, for example, would say that that 360 video you're looking at at one of the real estate websites is uh, not, you know, it's, it's reality, um, I suppose. But you can augment it by, you know, uh, changing the colors, uh, you know, making sure there's always a sunset in the, the window of every every window you look through in any of those photos. Well, why don't I, for the sake of our discussion, kind of frame some of those. So like with, let's start with reality. Um, your and my realities are very different. <laughs> Go blue. And uh, so, but basically the reality is the environment that we exist in. Um, it contains real physical objects. Um, it has an environment that is um, interactive and tactile and created either by nature or by um, humans or other animals. And it's, it's our physical world. Um, we are constrained by the laws of physics in, in, in our world in this universe. Um, and reality can, if, if for the sake of this discussion, I'm going to include 360 videos as part of reality, just because you're still viewing the real world and the consequences of the physics involved, you're just viewing it um, on a display, whether it's on a computer screen, your phone, or in a head-mounted display. But reality is anything that reflects the real world. Think of it that way for this discussion. Virtual reality would be that synthetic environment that, that is made and generated through a computer. And it contains virtual objects. And the thing about the virtual reality is it doesn't have to simulate our physics. It can have its own physics. You can create something that's that shouldn't behave the way that it, it does in our reality. Um, and it's a digital something digital that you're looking at on a display, but it can also be something if you don't have a visual display, it can include things like haptic feedback. It can include um, smells and, and different senses, as long as they're generated um, digitally or through a computer um, interface. And so all those things would be considered virtual reality because they're not um, part of the real world that we see. When you get into augmented reality, that, that starts getting into the spectrum. One end of reality, one end or other end is that virtuality or that completely digital environment. In between, um, the, 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 the names for some of these have changed over the past few years as the technology has changed. So I'm going to start with mixed reality. It used to be because mixed reality was so visually dominant that mixed reality was on that continuum between those two ends. And it was anything that mixed reality with virtual reality. So you have your augmented realities where um, you take digital information and you layer it over the real environment. Um, and so if you think about the PlayStation iToy or if you think about on your phone or tablet, 
you start thinking about Pokemon Go, you have this digital information that's like an overlay on what you can see either through the phone and the camera or um, through um, augmented reality glasses that you may be wearing, something like that. And then there's augmented virtuality, which is the opposite. So you have a digital world and you bring in video or other um, maybe um, in real time video um, activity to that digital display. So you think about the PlayStation iToy or the Kinect and where you have a digital game in front of you displayed on a screen, but the, what it does is it captures you and puts you into the game and you see yourself moving and interacting with that digital world. That's where it's called augmented virtuality. That is no longer really a term that gets used very often because it's just too confusing between augmented reality and augmented virtuality. And so now what they do is they break up augmented reality and mixed reality. And so it's a bit different. Augmented reality is that layering. Think of it as a two-dimensional layering. Mixed reality nowadays tends to be considered... Um, still overlaying digital content over the real world. But if you think of something like the Microsoft HoloLens, um, where instead of just kind of having that two-dimensional overlay that, that doesn't size and rescale and recolor, you can actually reach out, interact, move that digital object as if it were really there, or you could move yourself around to the other side and view the backside. You can't do that with augmented reality. Um, and that's more of a mixed reality. And in that sense, it could also be um, viewing a hologram um, and that technology is is kind of coming out having a hologram in front of you and how do you interact with that and so you have those mixed realities where mixed reality is that interacting with the digital content not just viewing it or, inter or, or interacting with it on a two-dimensional plane and it's weird because the technology keeps changing and I'd be willing to bet all this gets changed in the next five to ten years anyway but the but it comes into play when we start talking later on about research. So as an occupational therapist, then what are your, what's your advice in terms of um, how does it fit into our practice? How does it fit into the, is it, is it mentioned in the practice framework? Is it um, something that uh, OTs, I know you are an OT that's certainly using a lot of these um, virtual uh, realities in your practice. And what, what advice do you have for OTs that are interested in it? Um, so this is where I get to be critical of my profession, you know, and, and other professions too. Just leave the speech language pathologist alone. Yes, I will. I promise. Um, but professionally, there's a big delay, uh, kind of a gap in how we define um, the virtual context and as, as it relates to occupation and occupational therapy and, and things. And so if you look even our latest practice framework in OT, um, it still defines virtual as something that happens, um, communication that happens kind of digitally and things like that, and doesn't really get involved into it as a context in which it really is. And it's a context of, of where occupation occurs. In communication, um, virtual environment would be the Zoom call that we're on, or um, it could be doing FaceTime on your phone. Um, it could also just be telephone call. You don't have to have that face-to-face -face component, but they're, both of those are virtual contexts of communication. Recreation, you have your gaming and things like that and playing video games. That's a recreational um, component where the context is virtual. Education, um, in real-time education versus, um, you know, delayed uh, types of, of education. 
um, you know, watching a, a Udemy course is still a virtual way to do your education or a class or just to learn about something, but it's happening in a virtual context. Um, same sort of thing between work and leisure and education, you know, all those things, all those areas of occupation um, can happen in a virtual context. So to limit it to just that, um, that kind of digital communication as a definition is, is, is narrow. And it doesn't allow you to evolve the practice and understanding of what occupation is. And in today's world, our occupations are increasingly becoming more virtual and less tangible or a big mix of the two. So um, let's say that you're, uh, you've convinced the next generation or maybe the current generation of occupational therapists to really start looking at adopting these um, technologies. So how do you learn about the new technologies and how do you decide which one you think is uh, something that you'd, you'd like to ad adopt and which one you don't? And uh, where, do you, where do you go for your new information? Well, it's hard because we view as a profession technology as part of occupations in a, in a, in a very narrow sense. Then it means we, we focus on just what's available uh, commercially. So um, you learn about how to use a computer, you learn about how to use a tablet. And then there's a difference between is it one kind of operating system over another? And um, I'm trying not to use um, commercial names of different products because I don't, don't endorse any of them. Um, but there's a big difference between the operating systems and you have to learn how to do that. And it comes down sometimes to preference. But when it comes to therapeutic technologies, sometimes you become aware of it of research. And so then you have to kind of figure out where do I go to learn about that technology? Um, and most often than not, it's assistive technology within our professions is where we kind of learn it, whether it's you go to conferences, whether you go to continuing education, um, YouTube, you know, TikTok. I mean, people will, will post things about Occupationaltherapy.com. Occupationaltherapy.com, all those things. And the thing, the, the, the thing is, is that um, when you're looking at those, there's not a great deal of, of opportunities to learn how to specialize in therapeutic technologies. How do I apply all kinds of different technologies in a therapeutic way. And it's a kind of a clinical reasoning conundrum kind of thing. But the reality is if once you figure out a technology that you'd like to use therapeutically, where do you go to learn about it? And, and you do end up doing that online researching. But to be honest with you, you end up going to the technology manufacturers. It's somewhere where occupational therapy is becoming more um, savvy and in, in participating in is going actually to the tech associations and directly to tech companies and talking about that, you know, and then trying, it, it's okay to ask for demos. A lot of times they'll, the people will give you a demo. If it's made for therapy and they're advertising the technology, then they'll definitely give you a demo. And it's about how you analyze it and determine whether it's something that you can use in, in, in practice. So it's, it's very, very much adult learning um, approach because there's nothing really out there right now to, to help people get that kind of basic therapeutic technology training. So can I quote my wife? Absolutely. Great. So uh, the lovely Dr. Claire Kilbane from uh, the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Um, so she's got a book coming out and has talked about this process for a number of years. Um, but she talks about adopting technology or not. She uses the three E's. Um, is it engaging? Is it efficient? And is it effective? So most of the time when we think about 
technology, especially for every, not everyone, but for lots of people, the engaging part, most technology is going to have an increase in engagement, that folks are going to interact with it um, a little bit more often. Um, sometimes it can be more efficient, so that um, might be a little cheaper than using some other things, or could be much more expensive. But I, could you just talk about the effective part? Because I think as a, as a therapist, you know, we have a, a finite amount of time that we have to work with each uh, client or patient that we're seeing. Um, and so how do we make those decisions about this technology is going to be effective for helping, you know, Juan meet this particular therapy goal? Um, there are a lot of variables. The, the biggest barrier to that would be if you're not familiar with the technology, it's not going to be engaging for you as a therapist. I know we're talking about, um, a lot of times we talk about the engagement for the, the, the client that we're working with, but for you as a therapist, if you're not engaged because you don't have the knowledge about the technology, it gets frustrating. And then you can't get into your other ease. You know, if, if you're going to be frustrated by the technology, you're not going to see the increase in efficiency that it can bring. And you're not going to see all the the evidence that in, in, in being able to put it into practice because um, learning the technology, if you don't have a comfort level with it, um, creates a problem. Because we have here, and, and here's the big thing is that there's a, um, we're at a level in practice where there's a transition occurring in our um, clinicians. We have an older um, group of clinicians, and I include myself in that group of others, and you too, Dennis. Wait, aren't, aren't uh, you a little younger than I am? I am two years younger, so yes, I'm, I'm, I'm still plagued by the same things you are. <laughs> so we have a lot of experienced clinicians. How about I say that? We'll have a lot of experienced clinicians. That's good. Absolutely. Yeah. And who, where clinical reasoning is, is very natural now, the process is natural, there's no really thought, you just automatically go into clinical reasoning modes. But a lot of the gen, this generation uh, is not tech savvy. We didn't grow up with great deal, many of technologies that are available now. And then Do you we remember Pong. Pong uh, was that, such a great Pong game. Pong is a great game. And now it's available in three-dimensional virtual reality, so it's really good. So anyway, um, then we also have a, kind of a, a younger generation who, who don't necessarily have the same clinical reason experience. They're just kind of learning how to think and practice as a clinician. And the more experienced clinicians can teach about clinical reasoning, but not necessarily clinical reasoning with the technology. And so there's this gap in mentorship and understanding. And then you have these newer clinicians who are very tech savvy, very well versed in different technologies, but aren't mentoring us older people about how to use the tech in a, in a, in a, a thoughtful way. And there's this gap in the middle and we're at a transitional part and, and the mentorship has to happen both ways. You have to have experienced clinicians mentoring in the clinical reasoning component, but they have to also be willing to be mentored by less experienced therapists who have a, a skill set that, that, when you put them together, you, you can do some really great and amazing things. And so that we're at that transitional phase. In another five or 10 years, it won't be that way. But, but right now, it's kind of in this weird, um, stagnant phase where how do we get people who have those different skill sets together to, to mentor each other? And Rob, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I used to teach at The Ohio State University. Where's that at? And uh, that's in Columbus, Ohio. Mm. Here it's a really 
phenomenal place and has a phenomenal occupational therapy program. <laughs> and I was a, an academic fieldwork coordinator. I believe I, I placed a student with you at one point You as well. did. Just showing that, you know, Ebony and Ivory can get together on some ways. That but, is true. Make beautiful but I, music. As a, as a fieldwork coordinator, I, I used to um, really encourage uh, experienced therapists such as myself to try to, to take students on, specifically, obviously, for the mentorship that they could provide to the student in that clinical reasoning. But as you said, the mentorship that the students can provide to us in terms of uh, technology and really being um, able to grasp that technology. And I think especially during COVID, we really saw some phenomenal leadership in some of our occupational therapy students that really helped to support, you know, as we had a transition in some settings, especially in the public schools, over to, you know, Zoom or Google Classroom or whatever uh, your particular organization was adopting uh, at that time um, to really help those of us that were a little less technologically proficient to be able to adopt and learn some some new uh, technology on the fly. Um, so you mentioned uh, also a little bit earlier about how now there's some occupational therapists that are able to have had some great experiences with some of our national tech companies um, or international tech companies. I, I remember uh, going into, uh, remember the BlackBerry? I do, I, I had a BlackBerry. Yeah. But wait, I'll see. There you go. So I remember uh, when the iPad came out, and we won't mention the tech company that is associated with that, of course. Um, but, you know, I used to do a lot of training on using the iPad therapeutically. And I remember I was in, I, I think, the Atlanta airport, and there was like a, a BlackBerry store. I think they had one. And I think it was in the Atlanta airport where they were trying to catch up with uh, with Apple and, you know, Microsoft had started to have their stores as well. And I, I walked in and I, I just asked them about universal design and they looked at me as if I was green. Uh, and they, they just didn't understand the concept of somebody that had some type of a, of a, a difference in how they accessed, um, you know, if they had low vision or if they had, you know, some type of a, of a, a physical disability that they could access technology. And I, 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 I was pretty concerned then that uh, BlackBerry was not the future. And it turns out I was right, just from a universal design standpoint. But can you talk a little bit about universal design and, and how that's maybe provided some opportunities um, for occupational therapists and for the, the individuals we're serving uh, to be able to really access these virtual realities? Well, it, it, it used to be more of a consultant kind of uh, role for tech, to, for tech companies where they would bring in um, both professionals, but more lately, um, they would actually bring in users um, to talk about how they would interact with and interface with the technology so that they could develop the technology in more of a uh, inclusive manner. And um, it used to be that they would have um, therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech language pathologists, uh, rehab engineers, you know, everybody kind of involved in the, the rehab process to consult and give advice and it's moved over the past you know five years or so where more therapists are becoming part of those tech companies and taking that consultancy role into being part of the design process um, as not just a consultant but helping make sure that we're thinking in a, in a, a way that it is more universal and the reality is that engineers and and you know, and therapists are not that far off in, in how they think and problem solve, but it's just a different perspective of, of, of looking at the problem to solve. 
And then the, 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 the last missing piece that I think that a lot of tech companies are starting to do is involve um, people who would utilize more universal design and trying to not build for that the middle average of the curve, but to start designing for the, the ends of users um, at each end of the bell curve, as you could say, um, and starting to design more for those ends, because when you design for someone who has limited accessibility to your product and you design for them, it actually makes it easier for everyone else to use your product and it makes it much more inclusive in a broad way. So there's been a difference in, in thought process and, and occupational therapists and, and other therapists kind of fit into that thought that thought process that they have moved on to. Yeah, because it's so much easier not to have to adapt something if it's sort of built for the end user from a wide variety of abilities uh, in mind. Um, so we're going to move on now talking a little bit more about how we use these tangible and virtual contacts specifically with within therapy goals and how we bill for it. Now, not necessarily how we bill for it, but how do we incorporate it as part of our practice so that it's kind of uh, seen as as being part of what you're doing on a on a daily basis. Could you just talk a little bit about how you use um, the like how you're you're part of the inpatient rehab setting at University of Michigan and how that that works? Um, do all the therapists tend to use your lab? Do you trade off patients? How exactly do you go through that? Um, when when the computer therapy, the, well, the therapeutic technology program as a whole is is a new emerging kind of program in and of itself. It, it did come, come out of the birth of the computer therapy treatment lab. Um, and initially it was, the lab was covered primarily by the technology specialist. Um, so it would be referred by the primary therapist and the person running the lab would do the treatments in collaboration with the therapists. And then it sometimes there would be collaborations in the lab itself where both would be working together, but only one person obviously can, uh, can do the, the, the treatment and the documentation and the billing and things for that. Um, and that from a administrative perspective, that's not always the best use of time uh, for their therapist, having two people for one session and only one person um, being quote unquote productive. Um, and so over the time, it's kind of, over, over time, it's morphed a little bit. And um, probably the past seven years, we've done a lot more of trying to get people comfortable with the technology and doing that mentorship between um, people who are tech uncomfortable and uh, those who are tech comfortable with how do you then change your clinical reasoning process to apply it to technology to, you know, how do you use a computer or virtual reality to put your pants on or wipe your butt, that kind of thing. So could you talk a little bit about that, uh, how you put your pants on or how you wipe your butt and how do you connect, how do you connect that um, to using the virtual reality or the other technology platforms? So a lot of it depends on the kind of the level of immersion. And so when you get into the involved into whether it's uh, a computer uh, screen based virtual interaction or if it's immersed in VR. Um, if you want to teach somebody to reach back and pull their pants up or take care of their hygiene, you can just use that with 
switch adapting for com computer games and activities. Um, in virtual reality, it would be dependent upon the activity analysis of all the, the games and activities that you research. And by research in that sense, I mean play. Because you, <laughs> you have to play the game to do your activity analysis. And uh, no matter what my wife says, it, it's not just play. It is, it is research. <laughs> sure. And uh, so it, it, it takes some time to know how to connect the different virtual contexts to the goal that you're working on. And the key is knowing, is it more of a cognitive or a visual um, strategy or is it a movement-based strategy? And how do you kind of break it down to connect that? So I may be, people may be kicking switches or reaching behind them uh, to do things. They may be doing various sitting and standing things with the technology. Um, and say in VR, if they're doing a lot of squatting, um, and the, the, the immersive virtuality provides a lot of opportunities to do things in the hospital environment or a clinic environment that you can't do normally. I can take somebody out mountain climbing in immersive virtuality and they feel like they're not in the hospital, they're out on the mountain or they're out doing archery or they're, um, you, know, you know, playing a, a rhythm-based game and they, when you take the, the headset off them, they're like, I really forgot that I was here. I was really immersed and engaged in what I was doing. And meanwhile, you're t basically having them do it in the way that it wasn't intended. You're changing the rules and modifying the technology to get what you want out of it, whether it's balance or strength or coordination or range or whatever, to enable them and build that capacity to do uh, the goals that they, they need to, to work on. Do you feel like as a therapist that sort of changes the relationship that you have um, with the patient? Do they... In what way? Well, like, do they look forward to working with you a little more uh, than they would um, outside of, you know, a, a, you know, as compared to a nor more typical therapy session? Yes, absolutely. Uh, matter of fact, uh, there was a patient that came in today into the lab with their, their primary therapist. And over the weekend, I worked this weekend, and um, she had a very painful shoulder and she didn't like to move and things. So I just put her in a mobile arm support and um, had her, gave her switch access to a computer game that she's familiar with. And she went from not moving her shoulder at all to while she's in the mobile arm support, doing horizontal AB and A deduction to activate the switches, going from kind of about like a two inch range to where she was going laterally side to side over a two and a half to three foot range and she was absolutely thrilled because it didn't hurt and then she came in today and she was with her therapist and she was just excited she, the original plan wasn't for her to do the lab today but she convinced her therapist to bring her in here <laughs> and her therapist was able to advance her into reaching overhead um, just in a matter of two days with much less pain and then tomorrow they've agreed to try it without the mobile arm support and take mm -hmm. reintroduce more gravity but it was because she was able to do several hundred repetitions without the pain that she would do if we weren't using the technology in, in that particular way and combining different kinds of technologies to enable her to work on that that ability and she put her, her shirt on to this morning um, without the pain or an adaptive strategy. So she was really thrilled by that. So I imagine when, uh, you know, a, a physician, a physical therapist, uh, speech language pathologist, other uh, nurses, other healthcare professionals, when you see, when they see progress like that, mm -hmm. do they, 
maybe respect uh, the work that you do a little more than, you know, that they're, they're just going and playing with uh, Rob? Respect is a very unique and individual definition. <laughs> so um, I think they've R-E-S-P-E-C-T. That's right. It, I it, believe it, is how they spell it. It, it, it has progressed over the years from um, going down to therapy and playing video games to, to understanding the connection because patients are actually telling their nurses and other therapists what they're doing with playing games and going into a virtual reality and how climbing mountains has helped them do some of their basic ADL. And um, so having patients explain it means the patients are really understanding the connection between what they're doing virtually with what they're doing tangibly for their goals. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think patients understand the connection a little better than maybe some kind of rote clinic activity when someone may be using, you know, an abstract concept like stacking cones. You know, I mean, if I, had I, if, alone. If, if I had ice cream and a bunch of cones, oh, it would go. be very meaningful for me. Sure. Absolutely. absolutely. But, ab- ice cream cone. but plastic cones, no. But so, but they don't see the connection. And it's a lot easier to see the connection when the context is a virtual one that is connectable to their goals. Now, are you typically seeing inpatient patients or you'll see inpatient and outpatient inpatient? So how does that work in terms of carryover as we see, you know, inpatient rehab stays are getting typically shorter? So Mm -hmm. are you giving folks homework um, once they leave? How do you look to do some of that carryover once they've they've been discharged? Uh, Give them resources to some of the activities, but the the access come it, the part part becomes a problem with accessibility, and, and I don't mean it from a sense of personal accessibility. I mean therapeutic accessibility. If mm-hmm. where they're going for continued therapy doesn't have the technology, it's kind of a mute point. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to recommend somebody buy a $1,500 mobile arm support for something they may only use for a few months. Mm-hmm. If it's something long term and it's going to be an assistive device, I can show them how to use it therapeutically. But um, a lot of it is they end up like our own outpatient centers that don't have some of the technology. It became such a demand from patients going from inpatient to outpatient where um, they've, they've over, after what, probably about two years, our outpatient centers started building mobile computer therapy carts because our mobile computer therapy carts were so effective. And mm-hmm. it started taking that technology in and now they're starting to work towards incorporating virtual reality because their patients are demanding it. So because the the benefit and value they had on inpatient goes into outpatient. Great. Um, So in terms of goal writing for this specifically, um, what kind of goals are you are you writing? Are they specific to uh, the modalities or you're you're writing more general occupation based goals? Um, and this is a modality that you're using. The goals are always occupationally based. It's it's mm-hmm. the goals don't change whatsoever. Um, so it's not it's, like to get a 50,000 on a Super Mario Kart? No, but boy. Yeah, no, <laughs> the, the score never really comes into play except maybe someone who's competitive. <laughs> and it's their sure. own, they may create their own personal goal. But, mm-hmm. but typically our goals, um, the, the virtual activity, the, the game per se, and the technology we use are, are only the tools we complete the activity the same way we would if we were doing some other activity in the clinic, something maybe more physically tangible. And the key is your clinical reasoning. 
that's that's the part that's it's it's the important part the goal never changes so how you go about um, achieving that goal virtual reality is is just one component one option and is typically um, best used as an additional therapy versus a replacement it's not intended um, and doesn't do as well if it's the the intervention because you can't teach somebody to put a shirt on without teaching them to put a shirt on mm -hmm. the technology can help build their capacity to enable them to do that but to to put everything together they still have to do that very tangible activity and so the goal never changes it's it's about how you get them there and, and the virtual reality is just a tool. Absolutely, great. So in terms of um, a, like a leisure goal specifically, do, do you often write goals for leisure? Um, do you try to stay away from those? And if so, does virtual reality play a part in some of those goals? I would love to write more leisure-based goals um, on inpatient rehab in this environment. And I, I think, again, the answer is it depends on the environment sure. where the patient's at. So someone in a different environment may have um, recreational and leisure-based goals. On inpatient rehab, we don't. Um, a, because we have recreational therapy who is working on their own recreational-based mm -hmm. goals. Um, but from a reimbursement standpoint, uh, as well as a goal standpoint, our main function is to get people as independently as, as they can be according to how they define where they need to be and or want to be. Uh, as well as um, get them out of the hospital as soon as possible so they can be in a different environment to continue the therapy, whether that's in the home or whether it's an outpatient clinic. Um, this is kind of like the, the stepping point. So it depends on the environment. Um, even though it's a recreational, considered a recreational activity and pursuit, it's also an educational one. It's a communication one and it's assistive technology. We do write assistive technology based goals that may involve leisure as a way of learning to how to use the assistive technology, whereas the, the goal is independent use of the assistive technology for uh, a, a different kind of goal, whether it's computer access or whatever. But we may use the leisure as part of an intervention using that assistive technology. Therapeutically, we use, use it to um, improve their occupational performance skills. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the, the work you do there at the University of Michigan, is it primarily with occupational therapists? Do you support physical therapists, um, speech language pathologists as well? Or do they have their own uh, PT or SLP that kind of works in your center? Um, you're saying in relation to virtual reality? Correct. And virtual activity? Um, it depends on the, the therapist. We have a lot of therapists and, and it comes down to the pragmatics of the work environment uh, because the lab is in a separate space. You know, out of sight, out of mind sometimes is a, a thing. They refer patients, but do they use it themselves? Um, I have recently provided a mobile cart to the physical therapy gym because there is a therapist who is very tech savvy, a younger, newer therapist who's very tech savvy, and that has increased the utilization. A, because it's on the spot and it can be moved around a little bit, but when you have someone who has the interest and is it has a desire to learn how to use it therapeutically. Um, it's also led to about two or three other therapists, physical therapists on the team 
starting to use the technology too because it's there. It's they see it, they mm -hmm. see how it's being used, they hear what the patients have to say about it, and all of a sudden now their interest is peaked. And so when your when your space is like this, where we're separated physically in space, um, it's hard for them to see and, and interact with that. So a, a lot of the pragmatic work issues. Um, can be either a barrier or a facilitator to the use of virtual reality in practice. Gotcha. Um, so as you think about yourself as an occupational therapist and you think about um, sort of the types of intervention that you're providing, um, would you say that, you know, virtual reality is a, a context of what you're doing or, or how would you really define it in terms of your larger um, job as a therapist in general? Uh, virtual reality is, is a, a tool that it, it allows you to work in the virtual context. And so if you think about the context of, of difference of being doing occupational therapy at home versus doing it in inpatient rehab in a clinic, those two environmental contexts are very different. And people think differently, they behave differently based on those contexts. Virtual reality provides a virtual context to try different things, to enable a person to do things that they might not be able to do in a real world context. For instance, uh, there's a, uh, an oldie but a goodie uh, virtual reality game called Fruit Ninja. Um, originated on on you know uh, an I, on on your tablets and your and your phones, and it was a screen swipe, and that's how you interacted. But once immersive virtuality came to scene and, and somebody created it in a three-dimensional scheme, you have fruit that is flying up in the air. So how can I manipulate the virtual environment and, and defy the laws of physics that a person knows? I can hit pause. And in that particular game, the fruit freezes in midair. You can't, I can't throw fruit up in the clinic and not have it fall on the floor and make a mess. In virtual reality, I can. And then I can actually have them move around to the other side. I can either move them in their chair or if they're standing or working in balance, I can have them walk around it. And they believe that fruit is there. They will purposefully avoid it because their perception is that it's real. Um, and the perceptual abilities override their cognitive abilities during that particular moment. It's really interesting to, to watch and see. Mm -hmm. But then we might come back around to their side and if somebody has um, visual neglect, we may see, uh, you know, okay, what are the fruits that are in front of you? Okay, the leftmost fruit is the, the, the watermelon. I'm about to start this up again. That watermelon's gonna fall. Swipe, make sure you swipe the watermelon. Miss everything else, just get the watermelon. So how you interact with them and have them interact with a world that defies physics and the way that we normally think about interacting with the environment um, has pretty powerful effect. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have people in a, in a snowball fight with a snowman and if you don't see what they're doing on the screen and they're like making these really awkward movements, but if you look on the screen, they're just reaching over a table that they literally think is there. Mm -hmm. They will put their hand on it and nearly fall over going, oh, I forgot, that's not real because their perception has been, been fooled a little bit. So. Mm -hmm when you introduce novel things that aren't real people still respond as if they're real it's really unique Physically. and interesting to see yep. yeah and um so I, I guess if you're working with someone maybe that was a gamer and they've had some type of a of an injury or an illness and now they're having difficulty you know uh, doing their their meaningful occupation of gaming um like are you do you see in some ways that there's um, as much of a remorse or kind of disappointment in them that they're not able to 
to game as maybe in our generation, we if we had a stroke and had difficulty putting on our shoes or socks, or is it kind of night and day different? It, it's very much the same. It depends on their definition of gamer and my definition mm -hmm. of gamer and your definition of gamer. Um, the reality is that, you know, two thirds of the population of the United States play video games. Mm -hmm. um, several hundred, a couple hundred million people play video games and the number one genre of video games are um, really more of the leisure recreational genre. And so it's not necessarily shoot 'em up and first person shooter stuff that we think of when we think of a gamer. Um, that's more of a, a tag that people put on themselves. But I've seen people who do first person shooter games be very frustrated because they can't play like they did before. Yeah. I've also seen um, patients who've come in be very frustrated because they can't um, do their words with friends the same way because they've lost their, they have difficulty with language or um, somebody who can't problem solve um, an engineer who can't problem solve a simple online um, um, activity that allows you to create um, electronic switches virtually. And the frustration going, I know how to do this. I don't know why I can't do it is exact same frustration as the person who can't play Call of Duty the same way they did. It's just a different context of the virtual activity and what's meaningful to them. And it's the same process of, of grief, if you want to call it that, or frustration. That they have. But we can actually uh, turn that and utilize that into how we get them to play and interact with those ways to be able to put their pants on, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Gotcha. Um, so do you have any advice for maybe a, a therapist that's been reluctant to sort of move into this space and um, what might be a good first step or two steps for them uh, to start exploring and to consider this as part of their practice? And this is somebody who wants to explore it or you're trying to convince somebody that's valuable to explore it? Let's just say they want to explore okay. it. They, you've, you've enticed them here in this last uh, 55 minutes or so to really um, give, a, give a big look at, at virtual reality. Uh, the, the key is to learn about it. So yes, you can start online, whatever their preferred learning style is, um, whether it's reading, whether it's watching videos, or whether it's kind of a hands-on play is if you know somebody who has consoles, you can play console games. If you have a PC, you can play just about any game. There's millions of games in the world of the internet. And um, if they use their, their smartphones and their tablets and they play games or use apps on there, all of those are virtual contexts that they can do activity analysis on. Uh, the way that you, 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 you approach it is no different from any other activity that you analyze as a therapist. You're going to do an activity analysis. You're going to see how you can manipulate and change the options of whatever it is that you're playing or doing. And that's where the excitement comes in is because once you learn how you as a therapist can grade their game, grade their performance, grade their interaction, um, then they become hooked. And I tell them the simplest way to do it is, is to have a, a, a treatment model that works for you. For me, uh, the PEO model is a great in, in real time thought process that is not complicated. I look at the person, I look at the activity and I look at the technology that's the interface between the three and say, what do, am I getting what I want? And if I need to change something, 
where of, of these three areas do I need to focus and change on? Because the first per, first thing that most people do wrong is once they set up somebody to play a, a game, they watch the game. Because it's, it's interesting. It's fun to watch somebody play, but they're not watching them play. They're watching them play on the screen or on uh, uh, through what they're seeing through a virtual reality headset. And their eyes really need to be focused on the patient, mm -hmm. on the technology that I have as an interface. If, am I using mobile arm support? Am I using a, a standing frame? Am I using a, a, an overhead sling for balance? Um, and how do I need to make those adjustments to get the behavior and performance that I'm looking for to either increase the challenge or decrease the challenge? And, and that's that clinical reasoning thought process. Mm -hmm. And But it all has to start with learning and how to play the game. And so once they have fun and they've learned to play the game, then they can see how they can analyze it. And then they can see how they can apply it with a patient. Um, it, it, then, that, then that's where it really becomes um, valuable. But it, it is easier for someone who's looking to add it than it is to try to convince somebody like, like me back in 2008. Um, it, like I said, it was a two-year journey for me to, to kind of come to the realization that I really didn't know what I was talking about. So thanks, Rob Ferguson from the University of Michigan. We really appreciate your time and appreciate you being a guest on our podcast.